Good morning. Time to get all the technology started. What time are we nearly done? We continue this morning in our studies of the book of First Corinthians that Cam has uh, entitled as Radical. Radical because the teaching of the New Testament, starting with the life and words of our Lord Jesus and then the apostles who took up that word, we're introducing to our world a completely new kingdom, the kingdom of love. God's kingdom, God's intervention in the affairs of men in a way that would completely change the possibility of us knowing God and being in a right relationship with God. (coughs) And here in chapter 9, we find, I would suggest, three new radical ideas. Radical to the world, radical to a carnal Christian, but ones that exemplify Christian behaviour, Christian life. Paul begins this chapter by addressing a problem that had obviously arisen as within the Corinthian church there were many. People that obviously criticised him. What right do you have to say this? What right do you have to expect us to Uh, be supportive of you. There had been criticism criticism of him as the apostle, as the preacher, as the one who had introduced them to Christ, as many of the worldly elements of their life still controlled them, as they were still in many ways carnal, not really committed to the Spirit of God. And in a way, nothing's changed. I remember Billy Graham saying on one occasion, all some children get for dinner on Sunday is roast preacher. But in this chapter, Paul speaks of the integrity of the gospel, the integrity of proclaiming the gospel, the need for integrity in our lives in order that the Lord Jesus might be seen as he truly is by others. The only way that people around us will know of Jesus, in many cases, the only way your family members, the only way our neighbours, the only way the people that we work with will identify with Jesus will be what they see in our lives. And if they don't see the integrity of what God is able to do, then they get a picture that is not true, a picture that will not draw them to Christ. And you find that thought running through this whole chapter as the Apostle Paul wanted to do nothing and to have nothing in his life that would stop the full flow of the gospel of Christ being proclaimed through him. And so he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord Jesus? 
That was the mark of an apostle. One who was an apostle in the early church was one who had seen the risen Christ. The New Testament was written either by apostles or what they called apostolic men. That's the criteria that was used to work out which books would fit into what we call our New Testament. Either written by an apostle, one who had seen Jesus, or by an apostolic man, one who had been taught by an apostle who had seen Jesus. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord, he says? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are proof of my ministry, proof of my relationship to God because you have come to know Christ through my ministry. This is my defence to those who sit on me, in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do all the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas or Peter? Was it only I and Barnabas who lacked the right to not have to work for a living? And so he addresses these criticisms that people had obviously led had obviously had obviously levelled at him. And we know that Barnabas and Paul, for example, were tent makers. That was their trade. They didn't expect the people to whom they ministered to support them. They supported themselves. But then he goes on to say, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever ploughs and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we also have it all the more? But we do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive a living from the gospel. And so he introduces us to this problem and he says... We have a right to expect you to support us, he says. We have a right to have a wife. We have a right to go about our business of proclaiming the gospel with the expectation that you will give us the encouragement and the help that we need. He says even the law says that. The law in the Old Testament said that if a, an ox was being used to thrash grain, uh, they weren't to be muzzled. In other words, so that every now and again they could pick up a mouthful and eat it as they did their work. A soldier doesn't go to work at his own expense. 
And so he addresses this issue of what was his right. But then he begins to deal with the way he believed he should proclaim the gospel. Can we have it back on there, Theo? Thanks. And he deals with the first issue that he needs to speak to them about, and that is the issue of submission. And he starts by saying, but I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. The first radical idea that he introduces them to is the principle of submission. A word that is extremely untasteful to the world in which we live and it was extremely untasteful to the world in which Paul lived. And yet the principle of submission runs right through the whole of the scriptures. And it does us well to learn that principle for it would help us in many issues of life It would make life a lot easier for us if we truly learned submission. First of all, we deal with submission to God. It troubles me when I hear people say, it isn't fair. God shouldn't have brought me into this situation. I'm angry with God because this has happened or that has happened. My Bible says, shall not the God of all the earth do right? And our basic need as human beings is to submit to God as our, crea- as, as our creator. And as children of God, born by the Spirit of God, as our Father. And I've discovered that often those who will not have God rule over them usually will not have anyone else rule over them as well. So they go through life angry, disappointed, frustrated, and miss out on all the blessings that God desires for us. My only right before God is the right to come to him through the blood of the firstborn son that was shed on Calvary. 
My only right as a child of God is to come to him because that same son is now at his right hand as my representative. I have no other right to come. No other right to expect anything from God but his wrath for my sinfulness. No other right to expect anything from God but separation from him because of the the rebellion of my own heart. My only right before God is because he died on a cross for me. He shed his blood for me. He drew me to himself with cords of love. And the Apostle Paul knew that. So he said, I do not insist on my rights. I will trust God. I will serve God free of charge. I will do whatever he wants me to do in order that the gospel might go forth, in order that his name might be glorified, in order that men and women might come to know him. And then as we submit to God, we then submit to the leaders of the church fellowship in which we are found. Do you think sometimes the leaders of the church make hard life for you? They don't allow you perhaps to express yourself in the way you'd like to. They don't give you opportunities perhaps to use the gifts you think you should have or think you might have. Then we need first of all to submit to God and leave the rest with him. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he says, and he will exalt you in due time. It's up to God to work in our lives as to when we perhaps have the recognition we feel we deserve, that's his business. And he will do it in his time. A lot of the great missionary societies of the, grew up in the 19th century were very strong in their submission, in the principle of submission. Sometimes, of course, depending on who's Involved, some of those things can get a little bit tough. I remember a missionary that I once knew in Ethiopia, and it was before our time, but in those early days, when those in leadership of the mission, and it was a good mission, one of the best, a mission that God has used worldwide to see millions come to know Christ. But the leader of that mission at the time in the field was very strict. One day a missionary had a problem in their house with the, the flue and their chimney had burnt out and they were having problems with their stove. So he drove to Addis Ababa to, or got on a bus rather to Addis Ababa uh, to go to the market to buy a new flue for his stove. And he came into the mission headquarters and happened to meet the director of the mission there. And he said to him, what are you doing here? He said, well, I've come to get a new flu for my stove. You do not have permission to have left your station, get on a bus and go home. So he did, without his stovepipe. Now we would look back on that and say, well, that was extremely hard. But you see, that missionary had a lesson to learn 
not from his director, but from God. Because then he, before God, had to say, how will I react to this situation? I will submit to God because he is God's authority in my life and therefore with joy I will accept his decision. You see, that's what submission is all about. Submission is not just grumpily doing what we feel we ought to do or what someone else might tell us to do. But submission means joyfully, gladly, willingly submitting to perhaps what others might say and do to us because we see them as instruments of God in our life and our submission is to him. And then the Bible speaks to us of submission to civil authority, to obeying the laws of the land. Apart from things that might happen in in the situation of persecution that would affect our relationship to God and our witness, Christians should be at the forefront of being law-abiding citizens because the Bible says we are to submit to the authority. The Lord Jesus said as much in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember he said, if someone compels you to go one mile, go the second mile. The significance of that was simply this, that in that time, because the nation of Israel was under the domination of Rome, a Roman soldier had a right at any time to stop any person on the road and say, here, you carry my bag for the next mile. So they'd have to carry his bag. That was the law. Now you can imagine how the general population took to that. And I'd imagine there were probably times when some of those Roman soldiers thought to themselves by the time they saw their bag being half carried, half dragged, dropped and uh, carried along by someone in a very sour mood, probably thinking to themselves, I sometimes wonder whether this is worth it. But you imagine what would have happened if someone was a follower of Jesus and this Roman soldier says, you carry my bag for the next mile. And they say, fine, sure. Pick it up, carry it. Doesn't get scuffed, doesn't get dropped, doesn't get broken. Person chats to them happily as they're walking along and he's thinking, what kind of person have I got here? They get to the end of the mile and he says, okay, you can put it down now. Oh, he said, I'll carry it for you another mile if you like. You imagine the influence that would have on that Roman soldier. That's what radical is. That's what being a follower of Christ is, cheerfully, gladly submitting to God. So in our daily situation, in our daily round, it's not the people that are above us or the people that are around us that are the problem. We are the problem. They're just there as instruments of God to teach us what it means to submit to the will of a loving Heavenly Father who was prepared to submit to the cross for me. And then having submitted to the civil authority, he tells us, thanks Theo, he tells us to submit to one another. In Ephesians 5 and 6, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in the context of being filled with the Holy Spirit, notice, submit to one another in reverence for Christ. Oh, don't talk to me about some great experience you've had of the Holy Spirit if you're not prepared to submit to others. It's hypocrisy. Wives, submit to yourselves to your own husband as you do to the Lord. Husbands, show even greater submission. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. However, each one of you should also love his wife as he loves himself. The wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Referring to the Old Testament, when the commandments were given, the first commandment that had a promise of long life attached to it was children, obey your parents. Servants, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And masters, treat your servants in the same way. And what did Paul do all that for? He said, I submit in such a way that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights as a preacher but be able to preach with joy, with blessing as the gospel goes forth. Then he moves on to the next radical idea, the idea of servitude. Though I am free and belong to no one, he says, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jew I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law but under God's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. First of all, he says, be submissive. Secondly, he now says, be a servant. He's not calling us to do anything that the master didn't do. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples in those last few chapters of John, be a servant like me. Or as Paul explains it in Philippians, he was equal with God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation took on himself the form of a servant. Being found in fashion as a servant, he humbled himself and became a man. And as a man, a criminal, or died a criminal's death. Peter, that rough, tough fisherman, 
who would have observed the life of his master, says, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges rightfully, righteously. The way the Lord Jesus was able to be a servant was because in all of the injustices that came upon him, he submitted to the Father. He left his case in the Father's hand. Some time ago I was wrestling with the thought of how can I be a child of God and an heir of God and a servant as well. There seem to be two almost conflicting ideas. Because the Bible says that in Christ I am a child of God and if a child and an heir, even a joint heir with Christ, that is my position. But then the Lord Jesus calls us to be a servant <coughs> and the Apostle Paul referred to himself as a, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, a slave. Suddenly one day I had one of those moments when the penny drops and the Holy Spirit just gives that sense of wonder and I suddenly realised, well, both things are wonderfully true. My position is as a child of God, an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ and I should live that way. But my nature is that of a servant. And so as I enjoy the benefits of being God's child and God's heir, even a joint heir with Christ, the Father sees me in Christ, but I live out my life as a servant, seeking to serve others, seeking to humble myself under the mighty hand of God, knowing that whatever happens, that's his business. We sometimes worry about the outcomes. We sometimes worry about the, the way God might do things. That's his business. I was greatly challenged just quite recently, just two or three weeks ago, by reading that passage in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers where the people of Israel had complained to God when they came out of Egypt, they complained about the food. God had given them manna to eat He'd provided for them the sustenance that they needed but they started to grumble and they complained and they came to Moses and they said, give us meat to eat. God said to Moses, I've heard what they've said and I will give them meat. Moses said, how are you going to do that? There's about two million of us. If we kill all the flocks, it won't be enough. How are you going to do it? And God reprimanded Moses. In effect, he said to him, how dare you try and work out how I'm going to do things? And of course, we know the story. He sent a wind that came in and these great flocks of quails came and just covered the earth with so many feet thick. They ate so much meat they made themselves sick. Moses hadn't thought about quails. Probably hadn't crossed his mind. 
But how many times in our lives do we try and figure out how God is going to do something? And I believe that when we do that, we grieve the Holy Spirit because it's not our business. God says, trust me. Submit to me. Act as a servant. Leave how it all works out to me. Don't try and figure it out. Just get on with doing what I've given you to do and leave the results with me. And that's what Paul says here. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. And then the third radical idea he has is the idea of discipline. Submission is radical because the world doesn't understand it. A soldier in the army understands what it is to submit to authority. And basic soldiers go into basic training. They're basically made to feel like complete morons so that they will obey a command implicitly. So that when in, the, in, the, in battle an officer says, do this, they don't even think about it. They're conditioned and trained to do that. But that's the submission of coercion. But then when they talk about the officers behind their back, you know, they're not really submitting. I remember talking to a man who was in the Second World War and uh, he said there was one officer that we had uh, who was so unliked that when we were on the ship going out there, he was not game to walk on the deck because he knew and everyone else knew that he wouldn't even reach his final destination. And yet in battle they would have to do exactly what he said. So the world doesn't understand a submission that is out of joy and out of blessing and that brings joy and blessing into a life. It's radical. The world doesn't understand what it is to be a servant. To serve from a heart without any grumbling, any complaining. And now Paul says, don't you know that those in a race, all, do, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore I do not run like someone running aimlessly, I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I stroke a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The world says, pamper yourself. Express yourself. Do whatever feels good. Eat, drink, be merry. Enjoy the fruit of expressing everything through your body that makes you enjoy the sensual pleasures of life. And all of these things are God's gifts to us. I'm not saying we should live like hermits and, and stoics. 
but we should be satisfied with the simple pleasures of life that God gives to us and enjoy the bounty that he pours out upon us. But the world says, it's all about me. It's all about me gratifying myself. Paul says, I discipline my body. He uses the illustration of an athlete in training and purpose. When an athlete trains for the Olympic Games, they subject themselves to all kinds of discipline in order that they might set their goal to win that prize because that is the most important thing to them. And he says, my most important prize is to live for Jesus Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to cause others to come to know him. And therefore, I will discipline my body to make sure that happens. He uses a very interesting word here in verse 27. I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. The word in the Greek actually means to receive a sharp blow between the eyes. So Paul is saying, in effect, I give my body a good smack on the nose and I make it my slave. I make sure that my body does not rule me, but I rule my body. We spoke before of the fact that that those matters of submission were in the context of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I would suggest that discipline in our body is also in the connection of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because my Bible tells me that the fruit of the Spirit, what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in our lives is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith and self-control. I think we spend a lot of time thinking of the love, joy, peace bit and by the time we get to self-control, we've lost interest. But it's there. One of the manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. But I've discovered that it's wonderfully not me trying to control myself, but submitting to the control of the Holy Spirit. And that will mean submitting to the discipline of my body and my mind. So in my physical habits, I'm careful about what I eat, what I drink, anything that might be addictive to me. In my mind, what do I fill my head with? What do I watch on television? What do I read in books? James said, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God will not tempt anyone. But everyone, he says, is tempted when they are drawn away by their own lusts and enticed. I'm quite sure that the Apostle Paul wasn't into self-flagellation. Nor was the Lord Jesus when he said, if your right hand offends, you cut it off. If your eye offends, you pluck it out. Paul says, I smack myself between the eyes. I don't believe they were talking about that physically and actually. 
but using strong language to make it clear to us how we need to make sure that our bodies are disciplined, that our habits are disciplined, that the things we do do not lead us into sin. We need to be very careful of what we watch or what we do or what we say in order that we do not inflame the lusts that would drive us away from Christ and cause us to sin in the way we once did without him. We often think of that trilogy of, of things that would hold us down, the world, the flesh and the devil. I think sometimes we give far too much, we give too much uh, credence to the devil. I think we give him far too much praise. All the devil can do is tempt us. He cannot make us sin. All the world can do is entice us. It cannot make us sin. Our biggest problem is our own flesh. For we cause ourselves to sin. Paul says, I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. Lest having preached to others, I myself am disqualified from the race. Oh, what a tragedy it is to see people who drift away from the things of God and you know it's because self has come back in and says, I will not, in this case, have God rule over me. I will seek to do my own thing. We're not talking here today of stoicism. We're not talking about self-effort. We're not talking about self-achievement. But we're talking about maintaining our integrity as we both live out and share the gospel to others. Through submission to God and to one another. Through seeking to serve others. To live as a servant. By the discipline of our whole being, body, mind and spirit in order that the world, our generation, our families, our community will know that there is a God in heaven who loves them and cares for them and has made it possible for him to know them. The people around us should know that when we are right with God and our sin has been forgiven, there's nothing else to fear in this world, nothing. God's desire for us is that we should know him in that way and that we should share that gospel with others that they too might come into the joy of knowing him. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for your love to us. We thank you for your word. We confess to you, Father, that the real problems we have with the Bible are not the parts we don't understand, but the parts we understand only too well and often are not prepared to obey. Give us the grace, we pray, to allow you to be Lord of our life completely. Teach us what it means to live in submission to you. Teach us what it means to 
be a servant and to have a servant heart. Teach us what it means to discipline our bodies and to know the Spirit's control of us. For one purpose, Father, that we might honour you and that others might come to know you. For we ask it in the wonderful, wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.